Welcome to the Audit Podcast, the number one podcast for the audit profession. Be sure to check the show notes for all of our social media channels and to sign up for the Audit Podcast newsletter. Now, here's your host, Trent Russell. This podcast is sponsored by Green Skies Analytics, where they do everything tech-related, but only for internal audit. Although compliance and risk management, y'all are cool too, so feel free to check it out also. To find out more, please visit greenskiesanalytics.com, but it's more likely that you're just going to Google it. So to find out more, please Google Green Skies Analytics. This podcast is also brought to you by AuditBoard, the leading cloud-based platform transforming how enterprises manage risk. AuditBoard's integrated suite of easy-to-use audit, risk, and compliance solutions streamlines internal audit, SOX compliance, risk management, and security compliance. Automate processes and improve execution with AuditBoard's purpose-built solution, which is designed to address the most pressing challenges of today's practitioners. Experience the latest in audit, risk, and compliance technology. Visit AuditBoard.com to schedule your product walkthrough to see AuditBoard's award-winning platform in action today. Today, we have former president and CEO of the IAA and current founder of Richard F. Chambers and Associates, Richard Chambers. And on the show, a large part of the discussion came from his latest book, Agents of Change, which I highly recommend everyone um, check out. And so from that and reading that, Richard gives a elevator pitch for internal audit to use, which I thought was fantastic because I know when I get asked, hey, what do you do? And if I say audit, people just go, ew. Sorry, you know, and so I wanted to ask Richard for his elevator pitch for internal audit that we can all uh, almost mimic and use so that when folks ask us what we do, we don't get that. Oh, I'm sorry, you're an audit kind of thing. So that was the first question that we started with and got a really fantastic answer. And I figured who else would really know about the biggest risk to the profession of internal audit than the former president and CEO of the Institute of Internal Auditors. So that's another area that we dive into. And then we start talking about there's this currently in most and most, I mean, every department where we have more operations auditors or business process auditors than we do IT auditors. And at what point is that going to flip? Because tech is so ingrained in everything that we do, including business. I was curious to get his thoughts on when that might happen. And then we also got on to the subject of kind of what's going on in Silicon Valley and their internal audit departments, which I thought was interesting because you think of Silicon Valley, you think about like the hub of innovation is is there and innovative auditing has been a hot topic over the past year. So I want to get his thoughts um, from the folks that he's talked to in Silicon Valley, the chief audit executives in Silicon Valley and kind of see what they're doing. And then we also talk about the impact on culture and talent management and going back to the office and the impact going back to the office is going to have on that. And then what role audit can or could play going back to the office and the impact it's going to have on culture and the impact long-term on talent management. And then lastly, um, got uh, Richard's thoughts on analytics. There's a few links in the show notes. One of course is going to be the latest book, Agents of Change. We also talk about the on-risk survey that's facilitated by the IAA. So I'll put a link to the most recent one there. And obviously a link to Richard's website um, with his new venture, Richard F. Chambers and Associates. And then Richard briefly hits on a, a blog post of his, uh, one of his latest ones titled Five Goals for My Next Chapter on the Audit Trail. So we also put a, a link to that in there also. Aside from that, be sure to check out the audit room on Clubhouse. We're there live every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Central Standard Time. That's 8 a.m. Chicago time. Here we go. 
So I know uh, in reading Agents of Change, the most recent book of yours, that you give a uh, an elevator pitch for internal audit, which I think is very important that we have um, so that we can kind of change the perception of audit and market ourselves better, sell ourselves better so that we aren't kind of behind the ball when we go into uh, into an engagement and we say, hey, we're audit and people, you know, just go audit. Oh, this is going to suck. Um, so I'd be, I'd, I'd be curious, what is your elevator pitch for for internal audit. You and I, uh, we're you know, about to step on an elevator. We're both from the South. So the rules say you have to go first. And you say, no, you have to go first. And I say, you know, you have to go first. And then eventually we make it onto the elevator. And I say, hey, what uh, what do you do, Richard? Well, I, you know, I think that's going to be, first of all, how, how people have that conversation um, is going to be a very personal choice. Um, everyone is going to need to decide um, what the circumstances are and what's the message uh, that they want to communicate. Uh, I think people typically have, um, and I say people, this is a generalization, but I think a lot of people who really don't know what we do uh, will make some quick judgments. They'll assume that we are some kind of accountants, mm -hmm. uh, that we somehow have a, uh, I, I, I can't tell you how many times over the course of my 46 years in internal audit, people have said, oh, uh, you do taxes. Um, there's a, a natural assumption. So I think what you want to do is you want to be able, and again, with an elevator speech, you, you, you have to assume that person's only going to go three floors, so you better answer it quick. Um, so I think what you have to be able to do is you have to be able to talk about the fact um, that, that we provide uh, assurance about the effectiveness of uh, controls and about how well things are working in an organization, and that we provide advice and insight. If you can get those three words in, uh, I think it will be a big, uh, it will be, uh, it, you will help advance that person's understanding of internal audit. Uh, but you, you obviously want to avoid a lot of technical jargon. Um, so what I always try and say is, you know, look, we're, we're a source of insight and information uh, for management and the board and the company, mm -hmm. in the company. And the, the, the other question that I get asked a lot is, well, you know, what differentiates between the external auditor and the internal auditor? Because both of us provide assurance, but it's who we provide that assurance to that is the primary differentiator. The external auditors are providing assurance primarily to be relied upon by people outside the organization. We, on the other hand, are there to provide assurance, insight, and advice to people within the organization. So, you know, short answer to your elevator speech question is make sure that you, you convey the message that we as um, the internal auditors of a company or an organization are there to help make things better. And what were the, you said, there was three words that we should all hit on. What were those three words? Well, if, if, if the opportunity prevents it, presents itself, make sure you work into your conversation that we provide assurance, advice, and insight. Um, and, and, and increasingly, I would add foresight to that as well, that we help organizations anticipate perils that might lie ahead. Um, I've begun to use the analogy uh, a lot that we're like the lighthouse. Um, we're, I, 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 it so happens that I live on Beacon Street. And, uh, and I kind of think about the fact that uh, lighthouses or beacons that shine a light uh, to help warn people of perils and dangers ahead. So I think that one of the things that we have to get more comfortable with as internal auditors is this idea of being able 
to provide foresight as well as assurance for the, for the most part it, it is really about hindsight. It's about saying, I can assure you that based on what I looked at last year, last month, last week, whatever, that controls were, what the risks were effectively uh, identified and that controls were effectively designed and implemented. That's what assurance is. It's hindsight, okay? Along the way, we became much more adept at providing insight, being able to give much more contemporary view of uh, the organization. And, and then you can use that insight to provide advice. You can also provide advice off of assurance, but increasingly we, we've got to be comfortable with foresight. So it's this hindsight, insight, foresight progression mm -hmm. that I think makes uh, internal audit a very unique profession in some respects. Yeah, and I think everybody gets advice and insight. You know, we provide advice and insight and people go, okay, yeah, I get that. I think uh, when we say assurance, I don't think people really get that. Um, so I tend to say, you know, we provide advice and just kind of leave yep. it at that. What do you, what do you think about that? Assurance is obviously a huge piece of what we do, but in telling people what we do, uh, you say assurance and it's just kind of like, I, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what that means. So for the sake of, uh, maybe changing the perception of audit to others saying we provide advice and insight and foresight. That's, that's, that's fine too. Um, I, I, I think the term assurance may not be as clear to people as saying, we assure management and the board that risks are effectively managed and that controls are designed and implemented. It's, it's, more, it's more the, the act of what we do to provide assurance um, and what it is that we provide assurance about that I think makes it clearer to someone. Um, if I just say I provide assurance that, that isn't very clear, but if I say I assure management and the board about X, Y, Z, then I think it's easier for people to understand. So or, what's the biggest risk to the profession? The biggest risk to the profession is really um, the, the, the threat of complacency. Mm -hmm. uh, we've made a lot of progress as a profession over the last 20 years. I think we are uh, in a much better and stronger place than we were in the late 1990s when we were trying to define why we needed to exist, we sort of said, well, we need to be consultants in the future. I think we've made a lot of, of progress. Uh, I think the stature of the profession has risen. What worries me the most is that we're going to get comfortable with that progress. And I see it in a lot of internal audit departments already that, you know, somehow they, they're well-respected and they're, they're admired and they're liked in their organization. And then they stop trying to get better. Uh, the, you know, the old expression that, uh, you know, complacency is the enemy of, uh, of good. Um, you know, I, I think we have to worry uh, about uh, just becoming too comfortable and not continuing uh, that trajectory that we've been on for the last 20 years. Okay. Kind of a follow up to that is how do we get better? I think that goes back to the, the, the point that I made earlier about the, uh, the need uh, to not only be comfortable telling people what happened in the past, not only be comfortable telling them about what we're seeing now, but also get that comfort level uh, enough to be able to talk about uh, what the future risks might be. Um, and, and of course, all of that um, supposes a level of confidence, confidence and credibility in the organization, uh, within our organization. So we better work really hard at making sure that we have the skills that are necessary to provide the assurance, uh, the insight, uh, the foresight 
Um, and that includes some technical capabilities that a lot of internal auditors don't possess. Um, I, I talk a lot about in the coming decade that the torch is going to be passed to a new generation of tech-savvy and tech-fearless internal auditors. Um, but I'm not sure we can wait until they're all ready to take the helm. We better get, uh, we better get really good at identifying what the technology risks are that our organizations face and then get out there and, and do something uh, to, to elevate our own level of competence. And I'm not suggesting that you know, aging Jurassic CAEs like me are suddenly gonna become technology wizards. Uh, what I am saying though, is that we better surround ourselves with people who are, uh, because that's gonna be uh, you know, almost every risk that you can anticipate for the next uh, decade has a technology component to it, or at least is influenced by um, the evolution of technology. Yeah, and, and being in tech, I, I agree. Um, I'm curious that usually the makeups of a talent, well, actually not even usually, everywhere of every department I've ever talked to, the makeup of the team is we have, we'll just call them business process auditors and IT auditors. Right. And the business process auditors always, always outnumber the IT auditors, eventually that's going to have to flip, right? Do you see that changing to where the makeup is more IT audit folks? Well, you know what? I would say that we have to get to a point where there aren't a distinction between the business process auditors and the IT auditors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I spoke with one of the big, uh, uh, to, to the audit team of one of the big tech companies in, uh, in Silicon Valley recently. And uh, you know, I was surprised uh, when I learned, because I had visited with them a few years ago, and I've seen tremendous uh, evolution and progress in, their, in that particular internal audit department. And I was surprised when I was told that they are moving to a point where everyone in the audit department uh, needs to have the, the, uh, the ability to write and understand code, mm-hmm. um, because, because that is such an integral part of their business. So in that case, it is a, the business is technology. But when we talk about the fact that we uh, need to have strong business acumen uh, as internal auditors, I, I would say that includes a strong technology component. And so I would hope that if we're having this conversation in 10 years, that we're not talking about the IT auditors and the business process auditors anymore, that it is a given that business process auditors have <clears throat> as much technology a capability and expertise as they need. Yeah, and I've heard some very some some folks on this show actually uh, forward thinking audit leaders that have said the same thing. They're, the future should be there's no distinction, and they're and they're putting uh, processes in place and trainings in place right now to to do that to where there is no distinction. And you know, I've seen uh, Trent. I've seen over the the course of my career, I've I've joked about it before because I saw when I first came into this profession. Uh, the IT auditors uh, typically worked in another building from uh, the the uh, the internal audit staff. Uh, eventually, they they let them be in the same building, but they were on different floors. Uh, in in the last decade or two, uh, they're now in the same department, but they're separated by their cubicles. I think that at some point, that is all going to be a relic of the past, and that you're going to have with residing within one individual the capabilities that it takes to do um, all, all aspects of auditing. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you won't always have someone who has a strong affinity or preference uh, for something like cybersecurity, but I, I think you have to have a minimal level of competence 
and that minimal level is rising as time goes by um, in dealing with technology risks. Hey everyone, thank you for continuing to listen to the show. We wanna say thank you again to our sponsors over at Audit Board, the leading cloud-based platform transforming how enterprises manage risk. Audit Board's integrated suite of easy to use audit risk and compliance solutions streamlines internal audit, SOX compliance, risk management, and security compliance. Automate processes and improve execution with Audit Board's purpose-built solution, which is designed to address the most pressing challenges of today's practitioners. Experience the latest in audit, risk, and compliance technology. Visit auditboard.com to schedule your product walkthrough to see Audit Board's award-winning platform in action today. You're talking about being in Silicon Valley uh, recently. What are you seeing relative to internal audit within, you know, kind of the heart of, you know, innovation? We think of Silicon Valley as like the heart of innovation. And you spent time there recently talking to internal audit departments. What are you seeing from them? You know, I, I've been going out to Silicon Valley and uh, meeting with internal audit leaders for uh, um, the better part of a decade. And I can tell you a decade ago when I went out there and I met with, uh, you know, I, I actually trekked around to all of the, the uh, brand names. I'm not going to get into them here, but um, meeting with their chief audit executives, um, I'll tell you, I was a little bit surprised and almost disillusioned uh, because in, in some respects, those companies at that time, it was kind of like the Wild West. Um, you know, there really wasn't a lot of emphasis on controls, compliance. Uh, it was kind of the, the speed of evolution was, uh, you know, what well, was moving at warp speed. And, and chief audit executives would say, well, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're here to be seen and not heard. Um, we, we, we can't get in the way. We, we offer our insights as we go along. We don't even do audit reports. And there were a lot of things that I was hearing uh, that, that worried me a little bit because I knew that these companies were facing some pretty extraordinary risks. And then I think somewhere over the last five years or so, um, the, things have fundamentally changed. And I think a lot of us can assume why. I mean, there's been a lot more focus on uh, data privacy and security and uh how these, uh, how these companies are uh, exercising their roles and responsibilities. And suddenly in the last two or three years, I am seeing a real uh, rapid level of maturity envelop these internal audit departments. And they're suddenly, uh, well, they, they still very much are acclimating within the culture of their companies, but I think their companies have begun to respect uh, the kind of discipline that they need to have when it comes to uh, risk management and controls uh, and compliance particularly. Uh, and suddenly there's a much greater respect for internal audit and these internal audit departments are really starting uh, to, to ele be elevated in stature. And, and you mentioned culture uh, just a second ago. So this, it's gonna take me a second to set this up, but from the book, um, you talk about the, the on-risk survey and we'll put a link in the show notes to the, the most recent on-risk survey. Uh, but reading straight from uh, what the on-risk survey is, provides a unique and highly valuable examination of risk as viewed by internal audit and, and as emphasized, its stakeholders. One of the things that we see from the, the most recent survey is the C-suite and board rank talent management and culture as the second and third most relevant risks, while fewer than a quarter of CAEs reported assurance in those two areas. And the reason I kind of set all this up is because going back to the office, I don't know if it's just been for whatever reason, this week has seemed to, it seemed to be when decisions are starting to be made about that. And I've literally talked to multiple, like multiple people that I've talked to this week were in tears. Uh, some were in audit, some were 
but we're in tears because they're being told, look, you've got, you know, you've got three weeks and then we're all going to be back in the office again. Uh, and it's just a huge disruption to the lifestyle that they've adapted to over the past year um, and, and their work-life balance and those kinds of things. And so it just seems like the culture, if, if you go from basically 100% remote to know we're back in the office five days a week, the culture is going to take a huge hit, in my opinion. It's yet to be seen, but it seems like it would. You're going to have people, I mean, if people are crying, <laughs> that's not good for culture. Uh, so there's a culture piece. And then talent management, if you're one of the only games in town or one of the few games in town that are five days a week in the office and others are not, um, well, I'll just go get a job for, you know, doing the same thing, six states over, stay home, work remote. And, yep. the, and the, the folks that are staying five days a week, there's going to be a talent gap. They're not going to be able to get, if you're the only, if you're the only one in town doing five days a week or one of the few, nobody's going to leave their, um, the remote gig to come work and sit in the office the whole time. So yeah. all that to set it up to say, what do you, what do you think that the impact of the decisions being made to go back is going to have on culture and on talent management, considering those are two of the areas that the C-suite and the board rank as uh, relevant? You know, uh, culture is an interesting topic. It's one that we've talked a lot about in the profession over the last decade. I, you know, culture risks were always there. And in fact, you know, People, some people referred to them as tone at the top and various, uh, there were various ways that you sort of alluded to the fact that culture was a, was a risk and, and uh, that internal auditors should be attuned to it. But in the last decade, we've seen uh, culture getting a lot more emphasis as it was evident that uh, in some very, very high profile failures and scandals, culture played an important role. And I, I define culture, you know, there, there are all kinds of uh, academic, uh, technical definitions for culture. I take a very simple view. Culture is how we do things around here. And so, you know, when you talk about uh, returning to the workplace and culture, you know, I guess the first thing I would say is um, the, the best way to get uh, uh, your your talent uh, to stay with you and to acclimate to the idea is to involve them in the conversation. Mm -hmm. If uh, management is making uh, kind of unilateral edicts that uh, we're all going to be going back to the office on this day and time, in, in all likelihood, that's probably not the kind of culture that they say they follow, uh, but it, it, it does come with it. Uh, it does bring with it the kinds of risks you're talking about. And that is that you're going to have people who say, well, this is just not a company I want to be a part of anymore because um, they've been very flexible with me over the last year. And now suddenly it's like we're going back to two years ago and they're telling me this is where I got to be at this place in time. So I would caution um, management, CEOs and HR professionals and others in management, I would caution them to take a very um, deliberate approach to how uh, they're going to migrate the organization back to some sort of a, a, an in-person in or in the workplace mode. I think what's going to end up happening, again, I have no crystal ball, but I think what's going to end up happening is this, there's going to be sort of a hybrid uh, that evolves out of this, that, uh, you know, that not everyone is going to be expected to go back to a physical workplace five days a week. Um, some companies have adapted very well to the work from home environment. Others haven't, uh, but those are inextricably linked. You're right. The talent 
risks and and the culture risks are very very tightly linked because uh, when people uh, when people feel like the culture no longer reflects them or who they want to be or the kind of organization they want to work in, they'll often go find a culture that they feel more comfortable with. What what do you what do you think the role is that audit can play? Is it just is it as simple as do a culture audit or, you know, what, what kind of role can we play if, if culture and talent management are top of mind for uh, the C-suite and board, what, what role can audit play? Well, the one thing we always have to be careful not to do is to, um, is to insert ourselves into management's responsibilities. So we shouldn't be uh, out there, in my opinion, we shouldn't be out there making uh, direct recommendations on don't bring people back to work because it's going to make them sad. Okay. <laughs> what we need to be comfortable with though, is talking about has uh, management fully assessed the talent risks associated with those kinds of decisions. And if there are risks, what actions are they taking? Culture audits. It's interesting uh, that you raise this trend because uh, you know, I, I was given a speech in India a couple of years ago, and I was talking to, I, I was invited to address a room full of um, chairman of the boards of some of the biggest companies in India. And, and a lot of these guys were, were very senior, uh, in some cases, just, you know, almost elderly folks. But um, I, I talked about culture, uh, what, what culture is, what toxic culture looks like, and what internal auditors can do in auditing culture. Um, and one of them, uh, this gentleman had to be in his 80s, and he stood up at the end and he said, uh, you know, your, your presentation is very interesting. And he said, uh, I, I'm glad that you're raising these questions about um, auditing culture. He said, I would caution uh, auditors, though, that when it comes to auditing culture, that um, you need to be cognizant of the fact that you're going to have to use different skills than you're used to. He said, you're used to using, uh, or senses actually, he said, you're gonna have to use different senses. He said, you're used to using uh, your, your hearing and your sight uh, uh, senses, uh, but when you're auditing culture, you also have to be able to uh, use the sense of smell. Because in a lot of cases, um, culture, the, the, what's actually um, below the surface may not be evident. And you as auditors are gonna to have to become very adept at auditing soft controls. And we're, we're, I think as a profession, historically that's not been uh, where our, our sweet spot has been. What is your thoughts on analytics within internal audit? Uh, analytics, tech in general, uh, machine learning, things of that nature. Well, I, I, I would just say, and you know, again, I'm, I, I try to be careful not to generalize too much, but uh, I don't see how any uh, capable internal audit function can be operating uh, in the third decade of the 21st century without a strong data analytics capability. Um, we're, we're in, you know, we have been for, for quite some time, you know, literally in the era of big data, and there's no way that as an internal auditor, you can be using the kinds of tools that we did when I first came into auditing, you know, statistical sampling and, and, and the various ways that we tried to evaluate or analyze information and data. There's no way that that gets you where you need to be uh, at this day and age. Um, there, there's just, 
there, there is an absolute avalanche of data out there. And so I think we have to get much more proficient at data analytics. I, I had my first real exposure to it almost 20 years ago. I, I've shared this story. We, uh, I was the deputy inspector general at the Postal Service, and we had a request from a, a, a senator asking us to um, take a look at this one particular program that the Postal Service had where people were able to go in and, and send money back to their home countries, uh, send money to family or loved ones. And there was some concern that this was somehow being used for money laundering. And uh, he, wanted to, he wanted us to provide some assurance that, uh, that this was not being used for that purpose. And, and so um, I, I said, and he, and he said, and I need the answer uh, next week. Uh, which is uh, pretty typical, I think, in, in Washington. I want the answer yesterday. Um, and so I, I called the audit team together and I said, guys, we got a lot of data that we got to go through. There, there, there are hundreds of thousands of these kinds of transactions in this program over the last couple of years where people have gone to their post office, given money and, and sent it to someone in another country. I said, we got to be able to give this senator an answer, so do the best you can. And they came back in like three days. Uh, it, it wasn't even the, the full length of time we had. And they said, um, we think we're in good shape. And I said, well, how can you say that? They said, well, we examined 538,000 transactions. And I said, no, not, not how many transactions were they? How many did you actually look at? And they said, oh, no, we looked at all 538,000. And we found this and this and this. And suddenly my eyes were open because I would tell you that it would have taken 10 years to look at 538,000 thousand transactions in the 1980s or the 1970s in all likelihood, but by the late 1990s, and you think about how far we've come since then, the tools and the capabilities um, are there for us today to provide a much higher level of assurance um, because we can look at so much more data, but we can only do it if we're using the tools correctly and if we know how to use them and what we're doing. Hi, Richard. Thanks for coming on. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, is there any, any closing words or anything you want to leave the audience with? Well, Trent, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I'm only about three weeks now into this new chapter in my life. I stepped down after 12 years as the president and CEO of the IA uh, at the end of March. And um, I, I've sort of laid out uh, in a recent blog uh, what, what my goals are for this next chapter. Uh, I want to continue to give back to this profession uh, that I've been a part of now for soon to be a half a century. It's hard to believe. Uh, I want to make sure that uh, my voice is one that adds to uh, the discussion. Uh, and, and my company that, that uh, I recently formed, uh, Richard uh, F. Chambers and Associates, um, our, our purpose is really uh, to illuminate uh, the value of internal audit. We're working with others uh, to do that on an ongoing basis is one of the reasons I want to join you here today. I would invo invite uh, listeners to uh, check out our website, uh, richardchambers.com. It's easy to remember. Um, and follow my blogs. I blog weekly uh, on topics of interest. But again, it's all about trying uh, to be that, uh, that source of illumination uh, for the potential and the future value that internal audit can bring. All right. Richard Chambers, probably the most, uh, the busiest retired person I've ever met in my life. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Audit Podcast. Whatever platform you're listening on right now, I'm sure there's a subscribe button somewhere, so please hit the subscribe button there. If you're listening through iTunes or Spotify, feel free to go give us that five-star rating. It only took me about 16 seconds to give myself a five-star review. And it really helps to get future guests to come on the show. So we'd really appreciate that. Lastly, be sure to check out the show notes and follow us on all our social media channels on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on TikTok. Also, if interested, please sign up for our weekly newsletter from the Audit Podcast. Thank you all. Have a great one.